I'm really excited to introduce our next guest speaker. Uh, this next session, we're going to uh, get a lot of practical application and a little bit of practice as well. How can we be about this thing, making disciples and reaching out in a really practical way? So um, Justin Westcott is a pastor over in Federal Way at Soma Church, and he's a leader um, in a organization called Saturate the Sound, which we've uh, began to be involved with, and there's cohorts of other pastors that are pursuing this thing together of saturating the Puget Sound with the gospel. So Justin's here to share with us, and um, many of you were here a few weeks back, I guess it was in the summer when Jeff Vanderselt came, and he talked a little bit about Saturate. Jeff has been instrumental in Justin's Justin's life and discipled Justin, and he's here today to share what he's been learning, but also practicing for, for many years now. So would you welcome Justin? Thanks, brother. Good morning still. How are we? It, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I have made the farthest journey here from Federal Way. Keith only had to come from Pullman, so it was not nearly as far as Federal Way is, our neighbor. So it is a pleasure to be with you. As I'm thinking of uh, feats, I know that's a weird sentence to start with. As we're talking about beautiful shoes, the story uh, of my youngest son uh, keeps coming to my mind. I have three children. My oldest will be 10 this month. His name's Judah. Uh, I have a middle girl named Joya, and my youngest name is Josiah. Now I'm going to back up for a moment because when I was uh, younger, and when I had, I had a friend whose family all had M's. They were Mike, Melody, Morgan. And I was like, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you ever name your children with the same letter? Well, now Justin has a Judah, Joya, and Josiah, and I am that same guy. But my youngest, we were expecting him to be quiet. Uh, we're a loud, boisterous family. We love to... Um, be, people know when the Westcarts are showing up because it's, it's very common that it's loud. I was expecting, oh, please, God, maybe we'll have that introverted child that just likes to sit in their room and read books. Well, fast forward, he just turned four years old, and he's anything but that. He has one speed and one volume. That speed is fast. Those feet only know how to go as quickly as possible from point A to point B. Whether it's at the Puyallup Fair trying to run ahead of us, whether it's in our house and he has to go to the bathroom and he waits till the last second to go to the bathroom, whatever the situation is, not only is he going as fast as he possibly can, but he's also doing it in the loudest possible manner. He does not know how to whisper. It's full volume, full speed, all the time. As we go into this conversation around sharing our faith, of taking this concept of outreach from within reach, as we move forward to this, there's a preconceived understanding that I think we have to get over in order to do this in the midst of everyday life. Many of us believe that for evangelism to be done well, it has to be like Josiah does life. Very fast and very loud. If it's not done as quickly as possible, 
if it's not productive, then we're not doing it right. Or you may have the opinion that if it's not loud, it's not being heard. Fast and loud. If we think that evangelism and sharing our faith faith must happen right now, and if it does not happen in this moment, it will never happen. If I don't take them through my pre-understanding of how I share my faith, step one, two, three, four, and if they don't take step four, it'll never happen. I gotta get them there as quickly as possible. Or I have to be loud so I can be heard. I went a few years ago, I used to be a youth pastor in Federal Way many years ago now, and we went to the Puyallup Fair. And in the Puyallup Fair, what's the person that's almost guaranteed to always be out front next to the person selling the cheaper scones? The bullhorn guy. The guy with the sign saying, the end is near, repents, and the guy with the, and the same person with the megaphone yelling at people about how evil they are. So what do I do? I go up and I have a conversation with them. I'm like, hey, and just I'm trying to be gentle as much as I possibly can. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> tell, me, tell me what you're doing. How's this working out for you? And all, then I, I switch the conversation just briefly to, is this the only way that we're able to share our faith? And all of a sudden, we go from a conversation when he knows that I'm a pastor of a local church that I gained this respect, and th- at that moment, he switched on to megaphone preacher again, and he started yelling al- aloud uh, to everybody else around us, not, as if we're not having a one-to-one conversation anymore. Preaching is the person that you, you it's a herald from the street corner, and that's the way we do it, and, and my main question is, does that work now? Are we so infused with an understanding of how we share our faith that it has to be as fast and as quick as possible? And are we also so filled with this understanding that it has to be loud in order for us to be heard? My desire, as we think about what gospel saturation is, as we start to, in a little bit, you're going to be putting into practice a principle that I'm going to share through, I want you to hear this loud and clear. Your life and your voice are absolutely essential if the gospel is going to fill our region. Your life, not just the person next to you, not just myself because I'm on stage and I get to actually be loud because of a microphone. No, your life, your voice, your sphere of influence your friends, how God has wired you is absolutely essential if the gospel is going to saturate our region. So the invitation as we go through these three pieces of what's the necessary posture for us to be able to share our faith well? What's a a principle that can give you an understanding of how to listen to people well? And then we'll end our time with giving you some practical time where you're going to be pairing up with a few people to wrestle with and walk through some of the pieces that we work through together. This invitation is that if you lay down your life for the sake of others, what does Jesus say? You'll actually gain your life. If you want to gain your life, you must lose it. So this is an invitation. 
to lose not only those preconceived notions, not only lose the things that are hindering us from sharing our faith, but also the reality that we get to lay down what we want for the sake of other people. Garrett mentioned this a minute ago. We, I'm part of a team that's working towards what we call gospel saturation, and it's a, a team uh, called Saturate the Sound. So rather than tell you about it, I'm going to go ahead and show you a video about what we're up to. Imagine the Puget Sound filled with God's presence and glory. Imagine every man, woman, and child encountering Jesus daily in word and deed. Imagine people of different ethnicities working in harmony as we tackle injustice together. Imagine healthy churches that are deeply united in relationship and purpose. This is Jesus' vision for his church. Throughout the Bible and history, God teaches us to rely on him. God wants to do more than all we can ask or imagine. God has a new song for the sound. God wants us to dream again. Jesus began a movement, not merely an institution. A relationship with Jesus should never be compartmentalized into a place, a day, or an hour. The church is about people filled with the Holy Spirit, not just buildings and budgets. We are called to live with and for Jesus, where we live, work, learn, and even where we play. The world waits for followers of Jesus to be authentic and inspiring. We confess that we have been wrapped up in ourselves. The church is more segregated than the culture and often waving meaningless banners. We have chosen pride instead of the Holy Spirit. What if we drop our logos and our egos and gather it as one family? What if our collective eyes are on Jesus? What if our joyful source of truth is the Bible? What if the fruit of the Spirit becomes the overflow of our lives as we abide with Jesus? Can you picture a culture of prayer? Can you picture serving all of our communities? Can you picture multiplication through disciple-making disciples? Can you picture the population of the kingdom growing so that more and more is it on earth as it is in heaven? You are a culture maker. You are extravagantly and radically loved. You are a picture of God's grace. You have a story that is very significant. You are an instrument of God's healing. Imagine every man, woman, and child in the Puget Sound encountering Jesus daily in word and deed. This is our prayer for how Jesus will saturate the sound. Learn more on how to invite Jesus into your home, work, or community at saturatethesound.com. Yeah. Oh. That, the vision of every man, woman, and child having a daily encounter with Jesus. I mean, think of your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your children, your, your classmates. They have an encounter with Jesus, and it happens through you. Normal people in the midst of everyday life is the context in which we get to make disciples. It's the context where we get to share our faith. It's the context where we get to worship Jesus. 
And so as we think and lean into this reality, as we lean into the reality that my life counts, my words count, what God is doing in my sphere of influence matters, what do we need in order to join God in the work that he's already up to? When I think of gospel fluency, does anybody speak multiple languages here? Uh, one, two. Um, now, if you were raised in a home that spoke multiple languages, fluency in multiple languages was a lot easier for you. I've been told that once you hit puberty, for, there's something in your brain that stops working as well when it comes to learning a second language. But learning a second language, the best way to do that is when you immerse yourself in a group of people that already have that language really well. They, they're speaking it. They know it. You're, you start to think through it. I had an international student live with me for four years. Uh, so I've, in essence, raised a teenager. She was 14 to 18. She was from South Korea. And I remember her waking up one morning and saying, I dreamt in English. I was, I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I dreamt in another language. And that was a significant moment for her because now she was able to, know, to realize she was fluent in it. She didn't have to think about it. She didn't have to work hard at it. She wasn't conjugating verbs in, the middle, in her mind. It just flowed out naturally. Gospel fluency is the picture that the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is our mother tongue. It's what, how we view the world. It's how we filter information and understand how the world was created and what we're listening to as we hear other people talk. When we watch movies, this is something I do with my children. What are the, I'm asking, what are the messages you're see, receiving from what you're watching? How does that line up with the gospel? How's that different or similar to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? I'm training them to have an understanding that your mother tongue, as a Christian, what is your first understanding is the picture of the gospel. And so if sharing our faith in the midst of everyday life is going to be normal, if we're going to be a people that are fluent in the gospel, if we're going to be a people that are working towards the saturation of our city and region with the gospel, if we're going to be part of the movement of God of seeing every single person have a daily encounter with Jesus through the lives and actions of his church, what is the posture that we need to take? What are, what's the principle and, like I said, the practice? So let's first handle the posture um, when it comes to sharing our faith in evangelism, in my mind, there's, a primary, there's two ways in which people tend to go about this. And the first is similar to that uh, corner preacher and what I'll call the bold proclaimer. This is the posture that assumes that we, we have good news. And guess what? We do. So hear me loud and clear. The gospel is is the best news for people. It is the answer to their deepest longings. It is exactly what they need. Okay? That we have good news. The bold proclaimer, the posture that they take, is one that um, 
it has no problem sharing exactly what's going on, which is a good thing. And yet they assume that there is an exact part of the gospel that's going to be necessary in that life, that person's life. They assume, oh, I'm going to go through this trained process. Step one, they need to know this. Step two, they need to know this. And if I can walk through these eight steps or four steps or whatever it may be, then they'll get to the point where they have to accept. What I want to submit to you is that is absolutely essential. We, I encourage my church this all the time. We need to boldly proclaim the gospel. We need to share our faith. I'm, we just did a series on Acts. In Acts chapter 4, they were, um, some of the apostles were just persecuted. They get released from jail. They go back. God shows up, and you know what they pray? Lord, give us more boldness. Like, I want us to have that posture. I want us to say, yes, we have good news to share. We know what this person needs. And yet, I want to encourage us that there's something that probably should come before that. And that's the posture of being a curious listener. We live in a day and age where more and more people have less and less of an experience with the gospel of Jesus and the local church. For many people, it would be as comfortable entering into a nearby mosque as it would be in entering a nearby church. There are more steps removed from an understanding of the Bible and the story of Jesus than they were before. In previous days, we could have an understanding that they were close enough they had a basic biblical understanding of the story, so all they needed was a little bit of peppering. They just needed that last little bit. And I don't know if you're like me, but as you engage more and more people, that's becoming less and less true. As curious listeners, instead of assuming that I know exactly what they need, as what I'm now going to do and say, where is the spirit at work in this person? Whose job is it to point people to Jesus? The Spirit's job. It's the Spirit's job. I'm going to read uh, Act, excuse me, John chapter 16. It says this in verse 8. And when he comes, that's when the Spirit is given by the Father and the Son. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and you will no, see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for what he will take, what is mine, and declare it to you. When we take the posture of curious listener, we're taking the posture of saying, Where is God working this person? I don't want to assume I know exactly where God is at work. I want to assume God is at work. But where? 
What's he doing in their life? What's their story? What are they going through? What have they been through? What are the hindrances in that person's life that I'm listening to? And in doing so, we have an opportunity to then find out exactly where they need the gospel. Proverbs 25 says, The purpose of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. A curious listener is one that draws out, that takes time to listen, and listens to where that person's heart. I don't get to decide who God is at work in, nor do I get to decide his timing. What I get to do is I get to discover. I get to find out. I am a detective. I am asking. I'm curious. What's going on? Where are they? Where are the pieces of their hearts that are specifically needing the gospel? Francis Schaeffer has this quote. It says, If I only have one hour with somebody, I will spend 55 minutes asking them questions so that in the last five minutes I will have something to say which really speaks to them. Instead of speaking past them, I want to speak to them. Think of if you had an hour with somebody, what would you do? What he's suggesting, and I think there's wisdom in this for us in our cultural context, is that we take time to listen, ask questions, When we look to the life of Jesus, Jesus has asked 307 questions. Oh, excuse me, he asked 307 questions. He was asked 187. And how many did you think he answered directly? Three. He usually answered with another question. Now, that was a very common Jewish rabbinic um, experience. And I think there's something for us to take. A curious listener is asking questions. Where's God at work? Where are the parts of their story that the gospel actually can um, make an impact in at this moment? A few weeks ago, I was at my oldest son's soccer practice. Um, I'm in a band, and I was trying to re-listen to the music because I haven't played a concert in a couple years, and we're playing a concert coming up in December. So I was like, I just want to have my earphones in, I want to listen to music, and I don't want anybody to bother me right now. Well, (laughs) that didn't happen. We were, as we were um, watching, uh, this lady was there, and uh, my youngest and her child, uh, what I come to find out was her grandson, were, were playing, and so we'll call her Carol. And so we started talking, and I, I felt the spirit was nudging, like, hey, take out your earbuds, and let's have a conversation here. So I obliged. I, as I was listening, I, I just started asking questions. I started listening for, okay, God, what are you doing here? What's, what's going on in her life? Came to find out that at one point, she was uh, over 600 pounds she, um, so I was asking a lot of questions about that. What was, how, what was that experience like? She was very open and honest, and so we just kept kind of um, asking questions. I was just curious about her life. I was curious about what that was like. As the conversation moved forward, I found out that her husband had just passed 
about within the last year, and he was a rock for her. And so after she lost her husband, as we were talking, this, something just came up, and she said, what have I done to deserve this? My gospel fluency ears perk up because the idea of deserving is a good indication that somebody needs to hear grace. You actually don't get what you deserve. You get something beyond what you deserve. That's the gospel of Jesus. So I'm, I'm listening. I'm asking more questions. Um, after more, I came to discover that she was looking to her husband as her savior, and her savior had just died. The one, her rock, her stability, and don't get me wrong, that's a, a husband and wife relationship. That's a gift, so I'm not being detrimental to that. But that very thing, which was so foundation and fundamental in her life, was no longer there, and she felt lost. Um, and so as we were talking, she came to find out what I did, and so she, she just stated clearly, like, I just want to know that I'm loved. I just, I just need to be loved. Remember, her husband was that person, and now that Savior is gone. Now, what would have happened if I just would have saw her, not done any listening, and just said, hey, this is what you need to know about the gospel of Jesus? I would have been right. My theology would not have been wrong. Well, it, yeah, it would not have been wrong. And yet, after listening, I came to discover where she actually needed to hear. I came to find and discover what God was at work in, in that moment. And so what I did is I then just went on to share about the grace of God, the, that you, we don't get what we deserve that, that's, that's religious. We have a, a belief and a reality in the good news that I deserve death, but God has come to give me life. He's taken on the penalty of my sin. And then I went on, because I now knew that she needed love, I said, you know what that allows for? That allows us to enter into a new relationship with a Father who loves you, that will never leave you, that will never forsake you, that will be there in the midst of your darkest moments. And we have his presence with us. What did Jesus say? It's better that I go so that the spirit would come. And, then, and so I just prayed for her. She's, and I, I, I went back to my old Pentecostal days. And I'm like, God, I pray that you, she experiences the spirit and the love of God the Father right now. Show up in her life. I pray that she accepts us. And so that came at a soccer practice. At, a, at Silver Lake uh, Elementary School, right over here. Not because I'm special, not because there's this amazing thing, but just because I, one, listen to the Spirit, because He's leading, I'm following, and two, I was curious. I was asking questions. I was trying to find out where the Spirit was at work in this person. This is not natural for me. I like to be the bold proclaimer. I like to be the guy up here speaking it out, sharing what the truth is and, and getting people to move forward. And what, the, what I'm feeling the Lord's leading us in as a culture right now is that posture of curious listener. It's not assuming but allowing for the Spirit to know where they're at. So as we work towards gospel saturation, as we have this understanding that we're becoming more and more fluent in the gospel, that it's the filter, it's what we're seeing all of life through, 
as we take the posture of one that's a curious listener so that we can become a bold proclaimer, okay? The question is, what type of principles are we listening for? What are things that we want to be listening to? What are some different frameworks that we can um, think through? And so one of the things that we've done as a church is what we call the four questions. Um, This is a principle and a framework that we help people understand how to read their Bible. Uh, I work with Young Life students as well, and uh, (laughs) we try to, like, just ask questions about, hey, where have you seen this question? Where have you seen this in the Bible before? And they got nothing. There was starting from the basics. And so this is a tool that we've used for somebody that's like newly. We've used this for somebody that's been in the faith a long time. And this is also a framework that we use in in asking questions and listening for. And so the four questions um, are, who is God? Then it's, what has he done? And I'm going to say specifically, in Jesus. Next question, who am I? And if we want to make this plural, we can say, who are we? And the last question is, how do I live? Or how do we live? Okay? And if you, if you notice this, it's identity. This is about who God is and what he's like. The next question, his identity, or excuse me, leads to his activity. Notice, this is who God is and what he's like. This is, for my theology friends, this is theology. The understanding of what God is and who he's like. If you like theological terms, this is Christology. Who is Jesus? What has he done? His life, death, and resurrection. The power and purpose of the gospel. God's identity leads to his activity. If you want to know what God is like, where do you look? The person of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1 says. He is the exact imprint, Hebrews 1 says. So, Want to know what God's like? You look to the person and work of Jesus. So what did the person and work of Jesus allow for? Who am I? A new identity. His identity leads to his activity, which now gives me a new identity. When we think of the Trinitarian identity, we think of Father, Son, Servant, uh, Spirit. We think that we are family of servant missionaries. This is who I am because of what he's, what he's done I am no, I'm a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. The old has gone, the new has come. I've been, giving a, I've been given a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Okay, So I have a new identity because I've placed my faith in Jesus. And that, therefore, determines what? How I live. His, his ident- identity leads to his activity, which gives me a new identity, which now says, how do I live? And you can go through many principles and understandings of the scripture and you think that way. So let's do this together. Let's think of one attribute of God the Father. What is God like? Give me one. He's holy, okay? God is holy. Isaiah, get his vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God, okay? How do we see God's holiness show up 
in the person and work of Jesus. Yeah, he was sinless, right? What else? Excuse me? His action, unpack that for me. Yeah, he was separated. Okay. What else? He was a servant. Yeah. What else? I saw, heard somebody else too. He was perfect. I'm going to throw one out there because I think this is amazing. That he was holy, yet when he touched undefiled things, he did not become defiled. So even though he was separate and sinless, when he touched those that were defiled, those that were defiled became holy. That's different. That's a whole nother level. We, things that we were not able to touch, he went up and touched and he got his hands dirty. He went and he washed his disciples' feet. I mean, talk about the, the lowest of lows. So if he is ho- God is holy and we see that, and the sinless, separated, servant, perfect, yet hands dirty life of Jesus, what does that mean about who I am? Yeah, I'm righteous. Now let me, I'm going to emphasize one thing on this part. Not only what do you see in his life, but where do you see it ultimately played out in the cross and resurrection? Where do you see God's holiness in the cross? Yeah. The way to say that is, he, he's holy, I'm unholy, he took on my unholiness on the cross. He paid the penalty for my unrighteousness. He bore the pain of death of my sin, the wages of sin and death, he took that for me. And what did he do in return? He gave me his holiness. So now, because on the cross he paid for me because of my unholiness, who am I? I'm now righteous. I'm now holy. I can stand before the Father knowing that I'm loved because I'm in Christ. We can enter the throne of grace boldly. We enter into the holy of holies when we pray because while the priests in the Old Testament had to cleanse themselves by, by sacrificial, sacrificial rituals, I have one sacrifice who's been sacrificed for all, and that's Jesus on the cross. So now I'm holy. Now I'm righteous. Now I'm cleansed. So what does that mean about how I live? Yeah, joy. Huh? For God, yeah. I mean, now I'm separated. I have been, my life is now separated. What does Romans 12, 1 say? Act out your life as a living act of worship. Right? I can do that. This also makes sense. Be perfect as I am perfect. Well, because of Jesus and who I now am in Christ, I am perfect before the Father. Now, does that mean I'll never sin? No. John says, if you believe you never sin, you're a liar. It means in posture and, and before, the, before God, I am now holy. So therefore, I can be separate. I can live a holy life. I don't live holy so I can be acceptable. I live holy because God has already made me holy. See, see how this works itself out? And we can also start, we don't have time to do this, but you can start with, 
with here. So, hey, how are we supposed to live? We're, we're supposed to be missionaries. He was mentioning that earlier. Okay, let's backtrack that. What do we see that in about who we are? Well, God's called us to, we're the sent people, as the Romans 10 says. So what does it mean for us to be sent? It means, well, we, that's a reflection because God sent his only son. That he left the 99 to pursue the one. That we, we, and what does that reflect about God? You see throughout all the Old Testament, he's a missionary God. He's the one that pursues. You can go all the way back to the garden. You see how this plays itself out. So our behaviors up here are determined by our beliefs. What you think about who God is and what he's like will show up in how you live. Matthew 15, 10, and 11 says, And he called, Jesus called people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's out of the mouth that defiles the person. He says this in 1234, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, out of your belief, your mouth speaks. What you believe about who God is and what he's like will show up in your actions. What you do, how you live, what you think about him. And so as we not only think about this for ourselves, and you can start to work this through on a personal level. If we think of in-reach then outreach, this is something that is transferable because this is something you can work in your own life, in your own um, posture before the Father, so that you can do it for other people. As we're listening, we can use this posture as well. Because this isn't just helpful when it comes to working with other Christians. I think this is a common grace part of how God created us, in that no matter if you have a good view of God or a bad view of God, it will ultimately show up in your life. And we, by asking questions, can start to find out where that is. So to do that, I want you to remember, remember those questions. And we are going to think about, use an analogy of how to think this through. So I am not an artist. So if you think this is a hand, you could be right and you could be wrong. That's a tree. So... We, use, we take these four questions, and then we say, okay, there's a, a fruit and a root that's part of a tree. So if you think of the fruit of a person's life, this is what they say, what they do, how they act, how they feel. These are the things that are actually showing up. In a tree, you don't see the roots typically. But you see the fruit of that tree. How can you tell what type of tree it is? By its fruit, Jesus says. So you can see that this is what we, uh, how we live. How we live is the fruit in our life. The roots that go all the way down is what we believe about God or who is God. 
who is God? My life shows what I believe about who God is. That's the deep-rooted reality of who I am. As we're listening, we're, we're listening to what people say, in disciple-making relationships, we're watching what people do, how they act. We're seeing how they feel. But if we're in a more a moralistic framework, all we're trying to do is get them to behave. Remember the whole, what we just heard earlier, belong, believe, behave? If all we do is focus on these things, we're trying to add fruit that could be good, could be biblical, but are not aligned with the root system itself. People that do not yet profess faith in Jesus, they don't have the root system yet. So rather than if we try to just get them to behave, live a holy life, be perfect as God is perfect, we're going to not actually change anything. And where does the gospel need to be proclaimed? Not primarily to the fruits of people's lives, but to the roots. Who is God? What he's like? Where do you believe, what do you believe about God? And so we can say, what are our actions? What are our feelings? What are our beliefs telling us about what this person is believing about who God is and what he's like? Everybody has a, everybody's a theologian. Everybody has opinions about what God is like. Everybody thinks God is a certain way or acts a certain way. And that's going to show up in how they live. As curious listeners, we want to notice, we want to be asking questions, and then find out where the good news actually touches the root system. I was in a missional community a few years ago, and a good friend of mine named Hannah, new mom, she uh, confessed to everybody that she was terrified to drive. She did not want to get in the car, put her new baby in the car, and uh, risk, in her mind, risk losing that baby. So there's a couple different ways you can go about this. You can go about it from a statistical standpoint. Do you know what the statistics are of somebody actually, like, you losing your baby in a car accident? And it's very logical-based, as if logic can nullify people's fears. Like, no, like, that's, that wasn't going to work. So we, we did this together. We walked through this process together. Come to find out, as we walk through this, how do we live? Okay, we're noticing that you're fearful. We're noticing that you aren't living out of faith, but out of fear. Okay, what, next question. What does that say about you? I'm out of control. I, I'm not in control, but if I can stay in my home and not be in the car, I am more in control. No one's ever thought that here before. <laughs> okay, great. What does that say about the person of Jesus? If, if you're out of control, well, that must mean he's out of control. He's weak. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
He, he could, you could take this and say he's mean. He's, he's not protecting me. Okay, then what's God like? He's impotent. Now, we know that as we look through the scriptures, that's not what the, is true of the Bible. And yet, what was showing up in her life was coming from the roots of a false belief about who God is and what he's like. That's where repentance takes place. That's where you say, oh, no, that's, well, what do you see, and this is a Christian conversation, what do you see about what God is actually like? No, God's not impotent. God's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. In the life of Jesus, he calms the storms. They speak, or he speaks and they listen. So now because I'm in Christ, I know he's in control. I'm, I can be safe. He knows what's best for me. So I can rest. So what does that mean for you driving with your kid? Now You know what? I can drive now. And by God's grace, in that moment, that actually started happening. She started driving around, and she needed to remind herself of that. It's not like, oh, we did this one time, and it fixes all of these false beliefs. No, she needed to now remind herself, no, God is in control. God is good. God is for me. God is for my child. Therefore, I can act and walk in obedience with this reality. So we don't want to just recognize and notice what's happening on the level of fruit. That's important, that's necessary, and it needs to happen. It needs to go to the next level of saying, what does it actually say about what God's like? For people that don't yet believe, now, we aren't necessarily going to walk them through these four questions. This isn't necessarily a let's take out a napkin across from a table at Starbucks with somebody that doesn't know Jesus and draw a tree and walk them through that. It may be, but this is something that's the desire is for you to have this principle, this framework, this thinking that when you're noticing what's going on in somebody's life, you have this framework to be curious, to ask questions, to really say not only where is God at, but what are they believing about him? And as we discover that, what was the good news for Hannah? That God's in control. What was the good news for my friend Carol? That God loves you and is there for you. And how did he accomplish that? It always has to go through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If we circumvent the question of what he's, has he done in the person of Jesus, we have not given a Christian answer. So much of our culture is God loves you, or God did this, and God did that. Yes, that is true. But how do we know that in Jesus? Our good news is not just that God is love. Our good news is that God is love and he's shown that to us in his embodied presence of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's through Jesus that people are saved. So we have to hammer that home. We have to get them and walk people to how does this not just show you what God is like, 
but where do you see this? Where is the reality of how Jesus is the fulfillment? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is what their heart is longing for because Jesus is the good news himself. One caveat, and then we're going to start to do this practice. When you start to see people and work with people, uh, I currently have a, a neighbor friend of mine named Richard. He's a, a widower. He, um, he has very little friends and family, and so he's kind of become our adopted grandpa. Um, he comes over probably once a week, just stops in, doesn't know Jesus, find him every so often cussing in front of my kids, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't what you were supposed to do. Come on, grandpa, you can't do that. Right? Like, it gets messy when you start to live on mission if you haven't discovered that yet. And we're, I'm starting to notice, he doesn't, well, I know that he doesn't believe, and I'm starting to notice these patterns in his life. I'm starting to notice through a relationship that he believes a certain way, acts a certain way. It's not as simple as they need to get to the root you also have to recognize that you're working within a specific, if I can use this analogy, there's a specific type of ecosystem or an environment where that root was able to take. You can't just say, oh, I know that this is how it works out for me. I am anxious, so therefore they must need this truth of the gospel. That's not curious listening. You can't just say, oh, they're a sinner. They need to know that Jesus died on the cross for them. Yes, they do need that. But there's, there's probably more going on in the ecosystem itself. Their upbringing, their relationships, how they've been um, formed. It, there's probably a significant amount that's going on within the ecosystem itself that's allowed for that seed to be planted to allow for that root structure to take place so the tree is growing up and producing the fruit, if you're following my metaphor. We need, as God's people, as we're curious listeners, as we're equipped with the gospel, as we believe ourselves that the gospel is good news, it's what we need and what they need. It's the answer. It's the best we've got. And it's not just the best we've got. The gospel is really all we've got. As we discover where God is at work in these individual people, as we learn and, and ask questions and find out, we're up against the ecosystem we're up against an enemy that doesn't want them to believe this. And we're up against their own flesh, not wanting to, wanting to be in control in the kingdom of their own. And a culture that's rapidly moving away. And I love what he said earlier. It's not just the doubts. Doubts big, community small. And then as those shift, you start to lean that. This is not a one-on-one -on -one type of an environment. This is something we do in our communities. This is something that we do not just with me and my friend Rich. 
This is my family involved. This is our, our friends from our church involved. Him inviting us, inviting him over to experience a community that is believing this, working towards this, and fleshing it out as we experience the messiness of life. Here's where we're going with this. This is a chance for you to now put this into practice. Lunch is going to be around 12.30, so we have 30 minutes to flesh this out. So if you want to go ahead and put the questions on the screen, that would be fantastic. So what I want you to do is I want you to take two minutes, and I want you to personally identify a common attitude, thought, or um, action you continually wrestle with. I want you to identify a fruit in your life. What's, what's one that you have? After two minutes that you're going to go and you're going to get in pairs. And what you're going to do is you're going to take turns. You're going to have ten minute um, opportunity. One of you is going to listen and, and ask questions. And then one person is going to share. The, uh, then you're going to switch roles. Okay? I'll, be, I'll make sure that you know the timing of this so you're not going over. What I want you to do is, I want, speaker, I want you to identify... Um, and share what that fruit is in your life. And listener, your job is to ask questions to guide them from the fruits to the roots, discovering what they believe about God and what he's done. And as you get to that root, I want, and I be, because I believe you know your scriptures and you love your scriptures and you love the Bible and you love Jesus, you can do this third question together. What is the good news that can be shared with one another? As you're listening, as you're asking questions, where does that person that's now sharing need the gospel at that point? Ten minutes to do that, and then you're going to trade sides. Uh, piece of this. One, I, underst I understand that some people prefer introversion. You don't like to share this stuff. could be uncomfortable. Let's make this a very safe place. This is a new skill. This is a new understanding for many people it may not work out exactly like you want it to. God's grace covers that. This is an environment where we believe that we have been made holy and righteous and blameless before God the Father because of what Jesus has done, not, at good, not about how well we are at asking questions. You can make mistakes, you can fail, and you're still loved and you're still accepted. Okay, so that, let's place that all there. And... If you're not comfortable doing it with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's going to be that much harder to do this with somebody that could be in opposition to your faith. This is a training ground. This is an opportunity to learn, discover, do this here so that you can do this with people in your groups, but ultimately with those that don't yet profess faith. Two, two minutes. If you have a, a piece of paper or something or your phone, Go ahead and identify what is something that you are continually wrestling with. I'll come back up in two minutes. I'll split you up into small, or you'll split yourselves up into smaller groups. And we'll have a, a chance to converse for 10 minutes. We'll trade spots, converse for 10 minutes, and then I'll come back up and we will have some debriefing uh, process in through that. You may begin.